Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Intercooler Podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 102, everybody. Um, Andrew, we're recording this the day after the start of the 22 F1 season. Um, And because of how it went... You've come up with a fantastic idea for this week's podcast. Do you want to explain? It's fairly obvious. It's fairly obvious. <laughs> Very kind of you to say so. I think it's pretty. Uh, yeah, I think we'll just have a trot through some of the um, the great Ferrari victories from um, yeah, whatever it is, um, seventy plus years of um, them being involved in motor racing. We're going to do some sports cars and some Formula One just to um, jazz it up a bit. Um, I almost included the nineteen thirty five German Grand Prix because Enzo was running the team. And Nuvolari's Alfa Romeo beat all the Germans, and they were so surprised they didn't even have an Italian national anthem. Um, but maybe that's another story for another time. So yeah, we're just going to have a chop through some of, um, and some will take more time than others, but hopefully it'll be a bit of fun. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just great, isn't it? But I mean, hopefully, wherever your allegiances lie, I think if you actually love Formula One generally, it's got to be good that Ferrari's back um, winning again, yeah. isn't it? It's just it's just you know have the red cars up there. They are so. I mean, more than anybody else, they are. You know, if, if anything is the sort of personification of Formula One, it is Ferrari. And no one team is any bigger than the sport. But um, it's great that they are out there doing the thing. I'm not sure. I still wouldn't bet on them, you know, winning a title this year for reasons I'm sure we'll get on to. Um, but 
it's great that they're really, really strong. And um, it was a great race, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. Um, do you think it's fair to call the 22 Bahrain Grand Prix Ferrari's 11th greatest race? Or is it down in the 20s or something? Because it was, a, I mean, it's significant for many reasons. It was a really significant... I'm not sure it was one of the greatest races. I mean, they, you know, they had... They probably did have the quickest car. You know, if you look at Quali um, and you put a bit of Max Factor in there um, and, you know, Charles led from start to finish um, and, you know, and and deservedly so. I mean, to, to me, a great race is one where there's, there's got to be an element of daring do and a driver, you know, performing out of his skin and that sort of thing. So I wouldn't call it one of the great races, um, but it's great that they, yeah. that they won it. Yeah, so it was... Um, Ferrari's first win since 2019. Um, I mean, significant, really, because it's a new era for Formula One and an opportunity for Ferrari to get back in title contention. And by winning in um, pretty emphatic fashion, I mean, it it just bodes very well for the rest of the season. And also, it wasn't a win that was handed to them. They took it, didn't they? They took it with the quickest car. And Charles Leclerc was faultless. Um, Okay, so let's... I I mean, mean, the, the only advantage they had... I don't think you really call it. Well, it is an advantage. Is that my understanding is that your wind tunnel time is in that you're allowed. It comes in inverse proportion to how you did in the constructors. Um, and Ferrari came third, obviously, as we know, last season. So they had, I think, it was like ten percent more wind tunnel time than certainly than Mercedes, who won the constructors last year, um, and probably broke Red Bull too. So you know, they, they, they obviously had a bit more time to develop their car. Um, but even so. You know, it was an absolutely cracking performance. And, you know, and if you look at the pace of the Ferrari-powered cars on that grid, um, they've got a hell of a motor in the back of that thing, haven't they? Yeah, there was a point during the race where six Mercedes-powered cars were in the bottom six. Um, for so long, that Mercedes donkey was the one to have, wasn't it? But it, yeah. it does appear that the tables have turned. Um, I mean, this was a, a hugely anticipated season opener. For so many reasons, after the, the controversial end to last year's championship, new regulations and a, a totally new era for F1 that had been delayed by a year because of COVID. Um, and we've been gagging to see, haven't we, how it would pan out. It was potentially a total reset of the competitive order. Not quite that in reality, but um, I mean, Ferrari are, appear well and truly back. Um, yeah. As you said, it's it's too early to talk about the championship, isn't it? But it, if they continue this sort of performance, then they are right there. Yeah. I mean, a couple of observations. I mean, firstly, just going back to what we were talking about, why the Mercedes-powered cars appeared not to have had, you know, I've no idea where it is. But, you know, there has been this change in the fuel regulation, hasn't it? And they, they now have to run fuel with ethanol in it, and some engines will take more kindly to that than others. So maybe Mercedes is, is suffering a bit there. I think the, the only note of caution I would sound about... Bahrain. I mean, obviously the Red Bulls retired, um, so that's you know, particularly if you're Lewis, that put a you know a, a yeah. rosier than expected hue on what happened. But Bahrain is a circuit which is predominantly slow corners um, and long straights, and so if you're really good in slow corners and you're really and you've got lots of power, which defines what Ferrari has at the moment, um, you're going to do well. Um, Whereas my understanding is the Red Bull is supersonic in fast corners and does actually also have a lot of straight line speed. So I think as we get on to more normal circuits or more traditional Formula One circuits, which have a, 
a, a better blend or a more equal blend of, of fast and slow, I suspect you will see um, the Red Bulls coming back at them. Um, we'll see. Do, do you know what, though? I, I think F1, the sort of more texture, more intrigue in F1, when we do have cars that suit some circuits and not others, it just I means agree. it's yeah. less predictable, doesn't it? And there's just more... Yeah variety in the results it, it, it's good for good for f1 when that is the case um i mean we need to talk about these new cars because i mean the whole point of these new regulations was that they would be able to follow each other race more closely i think it, in recent years what we've tended to see is there would be one drs enabled overtaking move for the position for first for instance and then that would often be the end of that dice, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. But we, we saw one brilliant battle over two laps between Max and Charles. Um, they they swapped positions five times. Again, it's still DRS enabled, so there's some artifice there. But that was racing. Proper racing. Um, and also proper clean racing. Clean racing. Mm. Yeah. What, what's, happened to the, what's happened to the yield or we crash stuff from Max? Well, I mean, I think one, th- one interesting point is... Um, and I, I need to go back and look to see whether this is relevant to this particular example. But because these cars, you know, you remember how much rake the cars used to run and actually how much ground clearance they had. Now they run the cars basically on the ground. You know, if leaving the track means going over a curb, you're going to damage your car in a way you simply wouldn't have done last year. So you can't really, it's much more difficult just to, you know, send it. And, you know, if that means you fall off the track at the exit, then, you know, that's a risk worth taking because, you know, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to have to get the place back. So, so, so you know, you're actually no worse off than you were before. This year, it's not like that. You know, if there's a big curb at the exit and you're going to, you know, damage the bottom of your car, if not your spine, um, you're going to think twice about that, aren't you? So, um, yeah, and I don't know if you noticed, but the cars, I mean, they're being much more careful with the curbs these days. You know, all this sort of, you know, almost driving off the circuit through every corner. They've stopped, they've stopped doing it. Mean, there's some places where they can do it, but lots of places they keep absolutely within the two white lines. And, you know, I think that's great. Mm. Yeah, Cynic might say that Max will only resort to that yield or we crash stuff when he's leading the championship. But I'm not going to suggest that. Um, <laughs> I think there, there were probably lots of new Ferrari fans perhaps being borrowed from the Silver Arrows yesterday, weren't there? When After everything that happened last year, when the Red Bulls failed and the Ferraris were winning, I'm sure there were lots of Mercedes fans who were actually quite pleased to see that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I, I always struggle with people who, you know, support teams because they've beaten the team they don't like. I mean, support someone for a positive reason. Don't do it for a negative reason. I just, you know, you know, if you don't like Red Bull, then, you know, fair enough. But, you know, just, yeah. I mean, supporting a team, not because you have any particular allegiance or affiliation to them at all, but simply because they're the team they're going to keep out the people you don't like. I don't know. That doesn't sit very comfortably with me. Um, you know, I was, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I, I have no allegiance to Red Bull whatsoever. Um but I did think, you know, I did feel sorry for the drivers and for the team when, you know, both of them, you know, having, you know, looking for, you know, they were going to be, what, second and fourth. Um, and out of nowhere, you know, they, you know, I think, oh, I know you've got to finish the race and, you know, it's a, it's a hard-nosed business and everything else. And they didn't do as good a job as anybody else. So fine. But, you know, all those people go, ha, 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 you know, uh, Max is out. I, I don't, I don't share that. It's not really sporting, is it? But, I mean, in the end, it was a disaster for Red Bull. Um, the positives are they appear to have... A very competitive car on their hands, so they'll be back. Yeah, um, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Let's rattle through a couple of the others. Um, the Mercedes, yeah, I mean, flattered by both Red Bulls retiring so late in the race, third and fourth. Yep. But 
so far off the, the pace, even in the race. I, you know, I wondered if maybe um, in the race, Lewis, with his tyre management, with his raw speed, might be able to do something, but just miles off, both, both Mercedes. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and actually, however far off they were, they weren't as far off as they thought they were going to be. They kind of thought they found like a second over the weekend. So, and again, it'll be very interesting to see. I don't understand well enough where they're slow. Um, but you know, as you get onto different tracks, um, whether these problems get better or worse for them, but you know, you wouldn't say at the moment that they are, um, you know, in much of a position to challenge for anything. And I think their real problem is that clearly there is going to be, you know, a humdinger up front between Red Bull and Ferrari and those cars, there's nothing like competition to make you improve your car. And so the Red Bull, Red Bull and Ferrari will be going hell for leather, um with every upgrade every modification they will be doing their absolute utmost and so you know mercedes is already chasing a moving target and you know i suspect because mercedes do because they're such an amazing team they'll sort that car out and it'll be quick and it will win races this year but the question the the, you know the million dollar question is how far behind will they be when they get to that stage and if you get to sort of mid-season if you get to someone like spa after the winter after the summer break and they're you know way behind you know they could have the quickest car but it won't make a sufficient difference to catch up the deficit so that's fascinating absolutely fascinating because i know i don't know i would be amazed that mercedes doesn't come good at some stage this season it might be in saudi arabia next weekend it might not be till spell but you know so that's that to me is the great unknown of this season yeah Um, but i think it will i think it will and you know reliability might play a factor in this reliability might be the thing you know, if those Mercedes can keep plugging around, scoring points, and the others drop off or have issues, it, that that might be what keeps the silver arrows in contention once they get that car to work, which surely they will. Let's talk about some of the others. An amazing well, weekend. Just, just, just before we do, can I can I ask you a question? Um, let us just say I don't think this is going to happen, but let's just say Ferrari. It does turn out they they, they they've got the best car on the grid, and it turns into a fight between Charles and well between Charles and Charles between Charles and Carlos. Um, you know, those two appear to have a fantastic relationship and, you know, seem to get on terribly well and it's all terribly harmonious. Is that going to last? It just doesn't. There's no, there's no way it can. There's no way it can. Yeah. When there's a proper title fight going on, yeah. all that Particularly friendly Particularly when neither stuff, of them has won a title. Yeah, it has to go out yeah. the window. You just so can't much be pally. Um, and th- th- there, will, there will be a difficult atmosphere within that team. I just think it's inevitable. Um, but it's not personal, is it? Um, so we, we must mention Haas, who, I mean, for yeah. all of 2021, they had a dog of a car, didn't they? Yeah. Kevin Magnussen comes back, replacing Mazepin, finishes fifth. Um, <laughs> do you know what? I tweet when it was oh, speculated that, that Magnussen was coming back, giving up his factory Peugeot drive in Le Mans in the, the, the WEC. I said, why would you give up that seat to tool around at the back of the F1 grid in the Haas? <laughs> it shows you what well, I know, doesn't know. it? He's, he, yeah, he's, so apart from the podium that he scored on his debut with McLaren years ago, um, his best ever result in F1 has been fifth. Um, he's scored a couple of fifths over the years. So he's matched his second best result yesterday. Despite having is, been out for a year. Yeah. And in a um, hat, which was far and away the slowest car last year. So, I mean, all I would say them. about the hat being the far and away the slowest car last year is they did kind of know that was going to be the case. And they said... Yeah. 
um, because there were these big reg changes coming, they basically threw the 21 season, didn't they? And they said that they were going to do that and they were going to put everything into 22. And blimey, haven't they just? I mean, it's amazing. Now, again, you know, a very interesting team because what we've seen from Haas in the past is they've brought a very competitive car to the first race. But then they have, during the course of the season, yeah. I'm not talking about 21, obviously, but in previous seasons, um, they've lost competitiveness because... Um, I think it's because in the past they have lost, they, they did, simply didn't have the resources to develop the car in the way that the other teams were doing. Now this year, with the cost cap, maybe that's not going to be a problem, or it's going to mm. be less of a problem. And so maybe they are going to be a competitive force right throughout the season. It'd be great. It would be great. Both Alphas in the points, Bottas and Guan Yu Zhou, yeah. first Chinese F1 driver, and he scored points on his debut. Well done. Yeah. Um, both Alpines in the points, seventh and ninth. Yeah. Doesn't... Uh, they would have been hoping to step forward, wouldn't they? And you know, perhaps challenge yeah. the podiums. Doesn't look like, but at least on that performance, unlike the two least. teams, you're, you're unlike the, the two teams you're about to mention, they haven't stepped back. I mean, Aston Martin and McLaren. Yeah, what's going on? Appalling, appalling. So McLaren had a very difficult test, didn't they? Um, yeah, before in Bahrain, but that was an atrocious performance. Aston scarcely any better. Williams. Not much sign of progress there. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. A total reset of the regulations. And Aston, McLaren, Williams, all will have been dying okay. to Aston, step forward. So, so Aston Martin and Williams weren't really anywhere, were they? But, you know, McLaren, okay, they came fourth in the, in the constructors last year. But, you know, they were, there was a time when they were fighting for third in the constructors. Um, I can't even remember where they finished there. But, I mean, I can, rem- I can remember... Um, Looking at the order during the, you know, towards the end of the race, and four of the last five cars were Aston Martins and McLarens. Mm-hmm. Terrible. Mm. It's terrible. And 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 the and the theory is that you know, hopefully, ho- I mean, I suspect the Aston Martin just isn't a very good car, um, because I don't, I'm not aware that they had any particular problems. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, clearly the McLaren has had problems um, with lack of running um, with this brake overheating issue and hopefully they can sort that out and un- unlock the potential of that car if not it's going to be it's going to be a really really long season uh, for a team didn't we we all just thought shit they you know they're, they're coming back they're coming they're coming and you know they were third in the constructors I think in 20 and then fourth last year and now at the moment they're just they've gone from almost best of the rest to nowhere and yeah, it doesn't give me any pleasure at all to say so. I, I really, really hope. Um, you know, Danny looks like he still hasn't found his form. Um, you know, Lando, we know how good Lando is. You know, he shouldn't be languishing down the back of the grid. He should be right up there. Um, and they've, they've just got to give him a car that can do it. Yeah. Um, okay, so general thoughts then on the new regulations very quickly before we move on to actually the meat of this episode. Um Cars do appear to be able to stay a bit closer. It's too early to be definitive about that, isn't it? But it does look like they can race a bit more, follow one another. Um, there was a suggestion that they looked slow. Um, I was I was watching on my phone because it was sunny in the garden and I wanted to sit outside. And so I, I couldn't really see a great deal. Um, did they look slow? I mean, it might be that there was a lot of, okay. lot of tyre degradation and a lot of tyre nursing. So perhaps not on yeah. the limit for the, the race. Slow is not the word I would use. I did think at times that they looked a bit cumbersome. Now, it might be that they're not using as much track and so they're, they, you know, they're not moving as freely as they were. Um, you know, they're obviously, you know, they're heavier now. It's 750 kilos, isn't it? Um, and I think Brundle was saying that, 
you know, with a driver and all the fuel and everything else on board, you know, the car goes to the grid. It's a 900 kilo car when it goes it's to the grid. It's a lot, isn't it? Uh, well, it is really. It's sort of like a Lamar prototype weight, you know, for Formula One. That's a, you know, that's a big car. And I kind of thought you could see that they just weren't, you know, that, um, that extraordinary ability to change direction. Um, I thought that just looked a little bit more heavy handed, but, you know, I, can you really tell? Um, or are you just sort of, seeing things i don't know but yeah i, I still thought i just still thought the only thing i don't like about the cars are the wheels too big you know they're all of these sort of well it's, it's, i don't mind the size of them it's just they, they they just look like space savers you know these sort of you know 18 inch steelies with holes in them they look like something you might you know you, you might have found on a ford escort 30 years ago and i just you know it's a purely aesthetic thing but i just find them look they just don't look as good this is the first race of the new era and the cars will develop and they will become quicker. Um, although it's worth saying that Leclerc's pole time was one and a half seconds off the previous year's pole time. Um, do you remember when these regulations were announced, they were looking at three, four, five seconds slower, weren't they? So, I mean, F1 engineers are remarkable people. They've, they've found so much of that pace back. The pole time this weekend was faster than Lance Stroll's qualifying time last year and he qualified 10th so it's not like these cars are way back from where they were no and by the end of the year they'll be going quicker <laughs> possibly because they'll that's the it. nature of formula one isn't it right okay yeah. we, we probably spoke about the race for too long there didn't we but we can get stuck into what we're really talking about this week which is ferrari's 10 best races not only in f1 um, and it's important to note that we're not ranking these one to ten are we these are actually in date order um, so perhaps actually ranking them is another conversation. Um, a couple of these are not even victories because they are so significant for other reasons. Um, finally, this is the episode of the podcast Andrew Frankel has been waiting for. You all need to know that because we get to celebrate the Scuderia and he yes. gets to put his incredible motorsport knowledge to work. No, this is all God, off the top of your head. That. You're talking about <laughs> setting you up for a fall. Well, even the races themselves are yeah i have scribbled down some notes because some of them are um are a little bit complicated and i'll try to simplify them as much as possible um but the 64 mexican grand prix which we're going to get on to in particular is uh i mean it's absolutely astonishing what happened there but uh it does take a bit of explaining so uh, if you see me looking at my notes that's why <laughs> okay let's start with number one um as i said this yeah. is just the earliest one Le Mans 19... sorry, we'll be really we'll, we'll, we'll be really short with some yeah. of these yeah, Le Mans 1949. Um, yeah. Actually, significant. It's the first time Le Mans had run after the end of World War II. Correct. Yeah. Um, and this, was, this race was won by a Ferrari, but not by Ferrari, because Ferrari didn't enter the, into the race. They, they, actually, the, the chap who entered the car was um, a British nobleman called Lord Selsden, um, who entered... Uh, the race with Luigi Canetti. Luigi Canetti, um, absolute legend of the sport, um, you know, basically started Ferrari in North America, had won Le Mans for the first time in 1932, 17 years earlier. No one to this day has put a greater number of years between their first and final Le Mans wins than Canetti did between 32 and 49. Um, and okay, so A, this was Ferrari's first win at Le Mans. B, it was the first time, other than the first Le Mans, which doesn't really count, um, any manufacturer had won, or any, yeah, any mark had won Le Mans at its first attempt. Um, but the extraordinary thing about it was Selsden was ill. I think he drove two hours 
So Luigi, who was not in the first flash of use by 1949, basically drove the, the entire race by himself and went and won it. So, you know, that's, I've always just thought that was uh, an amazing and absolutely astonishing achievement by a person who was, you know, who should be much, much more revered in this industry than he is. At 47 years old, he did that. And yeah, so Lord Selsden drove one or two hours and he's, but he won them on that year. Yeah. Well, Technically. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Number two then, two years later, we're from Le Mans to Silverstone for the British GP 1951. Um, yes. Yeah, very, very significant Formula One Grand Prix for Ferrari. It was their first... It wasn't their first... Yeah, it, it wasn't their first Grand Prix win. It was their first win in the from what we know as the Formula One World Championship. Um, and most importantly, it ended an era of dominance by Alfa Romeo um, that had started before the war. Um, and Alfa Romeo had been regarded as unstoppable the previous season. They'd won every single race apart from the Indianapolis 500, which stupidly counted for the championship back then. Um, And the seeds of the victory were actually sown the year before at Spa, where a hero of mine called Raymond Sommer was driving a Largo Talbot. Um, Private entry, old car, and back then the choice was you could have a supercharged one and a half litre car or a normally aspirated, naturally aspirated four and a half litre car. Um, And one and a half litre supercharged was the way to go. And that's what the Alfa Romeo's had, and that's why they won everything. Um, but somewhere in this old private Talbot at Spa, because it was so much more economical, um, basically got among them and ended up leading the race uh, to the extent that the Alfa Romeo team went to the timekeeper and said, no, you got this wrong. You got this wrong. He's a lap down. He's a lap down. And he wasn't. Um, and they thought, thought for a moment, we're going to lose this to this, you know, knackered old car with this privateer driver in it. Uh, they didn't, because sadly the Talbot Largo broke. Um, but Enzo was watching. And he'd been nowhere in Grand Prix racing with his one and a half litre supercharged car because he just didn't have the resources and didn't have the experience of Alfa Romeo. And he thought, well, maybe we'll do an actually aspirated car. And so he got the great Aurelio Lampredi to do him a four and a half litre V12 and then got um, <laughs> the fantastic massive Roiland Gonzalez, um, the wild bull of the pampas, as he was known. Um, and that's what happened. Um, my father was there. Wow. And he, he used to describe the roar of the crowd as, um, as Gonzalez came out of Woodcut onto the, onto the pit straight, leading the Alfa Romeos. Um, and, you know, the car was really quick, but it just used less fuel. So it needed one fewer pit stops. Um, and that was that. And, you know, and that, that was the end of an era. Um, you know, after that, Alfa Romeo withdrew from Formula One. Alfa Romeo, after that season, to this day, has not won a Formula One race. <laughs> well, that's uh, whereas, as we know, Ferrari went on from there to become the most yeah. successful Formula One manufacturer of all time. And it all started at Silverstone in 1951. So there you go. Yeah. That's why that's in there. Ferrari's first F1 pole as well. There you go. Um, okay. Right. We're skipping ahead a little bit now. 1964, Mexican Ooh. Grand Prix. Not yes. a win. Okay. Not a win. No, but uh, well, not a win in the race, but a, but a, but a win in the championship. Okay. So, had Abu Dhabi last year not happened, uh, you wouldn't think that a cha- an entire championship could be decided on the last lap of the of the last race uh, <laughs> of the year. But this was this was another one of those. So, basically, 
going into that race, there were three people who could win it. Um, there was Jim Clark in the Lotus, there was Graham Hill, and there was John Surtees. And Surtees had been nowhere all year, and then the Ferrari had come good. Surtees was driving for the Ferrari. Um, had come good towards the end of the year. And going into the final race in Mexico, basically, Graham Hill... Um, it was his to lose. He was way ahead on points. Um, Jim Clark had to win it outright to have any chance at all. Um, and John Surtees needed Hill to retire and to... I can't remember exactly where he had to come, but anyway. But basically, it was absolutely Graham Hill's um, race to um, to lose. Because even if Jim Clark did win it, as long as Hill could come second or third, then he'd be champion. Um, and so it starts off and... Jim Clark just disappears as the lead as he was wont to do with being chased by Dan Gurney. Um, and then um, Hill is there and, and, and he's sitting pretty because if things stay as they are, he's going to be champion. Uh, and that's absolutely fine until um, he comes up to overtake Lorenzo Bandini, who is Surtees' teammate um, at the hairpin. Um, and the cars clash. I've seen it. It's actually on YouTube. Um, I call it a driver's incident. They each blamed each other, inevitably. Um, but the point being was that Graham Hill's car wasn't badly damaged, but he had to pit to repair his exhaust. And so at that point, you can remove Graham Hill from the equation because although he did finish the race, um, he wasn't scoring um, sufficient points to be world champion. So Jim Clark's now going to be world champion, which is absolutely fine um, because he's going to win and Surtees is nowhere. Um, but then... What happens is you've got Jim Clark leading, uh, you've got Dan Gurney in second, uh, and then there's Bandini, and then there's Surtees. Um, but then Jim Clark's Climax engine starts to lose power, and the question is, is he going to make it to the end? If he does, he's fine, and he's world champion. And then on the last lap, Jim Clark's engine expires, and he's out. Okay? Which makes Graham Hill he's going to be world champion because Surtees is too far back. Dangan is going to win the race. Then there's Bandini. Then there's Surtees. And so what happens? Bandini's car miraculously starts slowing down and lets his teammate overtake him. <laughs> and for the rest of his life, Surtees insisted that Bandini had a problem. Yeah. Nobody else saw it like that. Did he Nobody really? else saw it like that. And Surtees won that race, didn't win that race, Surtees came. So Gurney won it, Surtees came second and won the World Championship by a single point. Um, because miraculously on the last lap, just after Jim Clark had expired, which made even the World Championship possible, Lorenzo Bandini's engine developed a problem which allowed Surtees pass to earn the single point he required to win the championship. Da-da! Wow. I mean, it's one of those where the championship flips back and forth, changes hands several times in a the space of a few laps it's yeah an extraordinary tale um i think you have written about it on the intercooler app haven't you um okay that's a good one not a win but one of ferrari's most important races anyway uh okay we're a year later and we're back at le mans um yeah this is a good yes, one okay this yeah, is this a really is, good one this is this is hilarious because this is the, this is the le mans which was won by a ferrari which Enzo Ferrari tried to stop it winning, um, which, which is pretty extraordinary, really. Um, so this was Le Mans 65, um, and it was billed as, you know, 
the first really big confrontation between Ford and Ferrari, the two titans of the sport at the time. And Ford had been there in 64 with the GT40, but it was a new car as a prototype and it broke. Um, but they really did think in 65 with their big 7-litre engines. Um, the GT40 was going to um, really sock it to the Ferrari prototypes. Uh, what actually happened was basically they all broke. Um, and all the works teams from both Ford and Ferrari um, were you know, either retired or were out of contention. Um, and the race came down to this private... Um, well, there, there were two 250 LMs which were run by private teams. There was a Belgian one which was leading it. And then there was the one entered by the North American racing team which was owned and run by our friend Luigi Canetti, who'd won Le Mans back in 1949. Um, and they were second, and they were closing on the Belgian car, and it looked like they might win it. And so Enzo got someone to go and see the North American team and said, look, it's a bit tricky, but would you mind not winning this race? Because we've got a tyre contract with the team that's leading it, with the Belgians. I can't remember. I think they might have been on Dunlops and... Um, the North Americans were on Firestones or the other way around. But anyway, whichever ones the North Americans won weren't the one that Ferrari had the, had the contract with. So they basically sent someone to the North American team and said, don't win this race. Um, and Luigi Canetti, brilliant bloke that he was, um, sent the bloke back with a, a two-fingered salute to his name. Um, and that was it. So yeah, um, Maston Gregory, Jochen Rint, Maston Gregory right at the end of his career, Jochen Rint right at the start of it, um, neither of them wanted to be in the car because they knew it was completely uncompetitive. Um, they only drove it. Uh, they had an agreement before the race that they didn't want to do the race. They kind of hoped it would break. So they were going to thrash the nuts of it from the start. Um, and they ended up winning it. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, how and, many... You know, and, and, sorry, go on. How many drivers won that race? Oh, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so this is the... There's a fantastic conspiracy theory. Um there's a third driver, um, a bloke called Ed Hugus, who was on the North American racing team, driver roster. Uh, he, was a, he was a good driver, actually. And years later, he claimed that Maston Gregory, who um, was quite short-sighted and wore big, um, thick spectacles, um, didn't enjoy driving at night and came in and Jochen Rint was nowhere to be found because he'd come in unexpectedly because he couldn't see where he was going and Rint was off doing something or maybe he was asleep, who knows, but he wasn't there. And so they thought, oh shit, um, Master Greg refused to get back out again. So they stuck this bloke, Ed Hugus, in the car and he did a stint without anyone noticing. And the reason he said nothing is because if he'd said anything, because he wasn't registered to drive that particular car, they would have been disqualified on the spot. Um, and so nobody to this day actually knows how many people won that race? I, I think, generally speaking, although Ed Hugus, who was a person that everybody liked and respected and wasn't known for making stuff up, uh, I think generally the consensus is that he didn't drive it. And <laughs> he just said it for a laugh or, or something. Um, but, but I don't think anybody actually knows. I think the people who were on the team at the time, I know that um, Coco Cicinetti, Luigi's son, had said he was there, had no memory of this happening and couldn't see his dad allowing it to happen. Um, and Doug Nye, the great automotive historian, has completely dismissed the, the theory. But nevertheless, it's out there. Um, yeah. And yeah, who knows? That's a good theory. Um, okay, well, let's rattle through the next couple. Number five is the 1967 Daytona 24 Hours. Um, 
a difficult time this for Ferrari in racing, being beaten at Le Mans by Ford. Um, Enzo wouldn't have liked that. Enzo was really looking forward to it, looking for an emphatic victory, wasn't he? He was, um, and you know, the, 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 this was you know the revenge for Le Mans. Um, yeah, Le Mans '66. Everyone's seen the film. Everybody knows what, happened, knows what happens there. Um, and um, what happened? At, I mean, it, it wasn't actually that great a race because all the Fords broke and the Ferraris um, led round and came certainly first. I mean, there's that wonderful photograph of the two P4s going over the line with a with a third car, which is a 412P, which looks the same um, with it. And it was a totally emphatic victory. The the irony being, the reason the Fords all failed was they basically all their gearboxes broke. And the reason the gearboxes broke is because Leo Beebe, who was the sort of villain from the Ford Ferrari Le Mans 66 um, race, um, or the person who the person was portrayed as being the villain in the film at least, um, insisted that all the GT40s had their gearboxes changed for the race, whether they needed them or not. So they had brand new boxes in the race. And what that meant was that all the boxes came from one batch, yeah. which was faulty. So they all had Mm. faulty gearboxes in them, and they all broke, and Ferrari won Daytona in 67. And as we know, uh, after that victory, that's where the Ferrari Daytona came from. That's, you know, Ferrari never called the 365 GTB for the Daytona, but after that victory, it was such a monumentous event for them. um, The car became known as the Daytona ever since. Yeah, and Daytona's a better name, isn't it? Um, Okay, let's quickly quickly knock out number six, the 1970 Sebring 12 Hours, and then we'll move on to a couple of... Grand Prix. Okay, Sebring 70. Um, the really annoying thing about this event is everybody goes on about, isn't it amazing that Steve McQueen came second at Sebring and so nearly won the race? <laughs> yeah? Uh, it's so boring. Um, so, for the avoidance of doubt, the only reason the Porsche that Steve McQueen was driving didn't win the race was because Steve McQueen was driving it. Okay? <laughs> he was the reason he came second, not the reason they didn't win. Okay? So, He'd been teamed with Peter Revson, who was a hero of mine and an absolutely superb driver. And if Peter Revson's teammate had not been Steve McQueen, but anybody with anything like Peter Revson's level of skill, they'd have, they'd have walked it. Because basically, all the works, again, all the works, Porsches and all the works, Ferraris, had problems. Um, and by when there was like 55 minutes to go, uh, Mario Andretti, who was Ferrari's fastest driver, was out. Um, and the only Ferrari left was one, which was Vaccarella's, which was back in fourth place. And Vaccarella came in um, for his last pit stop, and they went, uh, Nino, just, um, yeah, thanks, but you're done now. We're going to put Mario in the car. And so they put Andretti in the car. Andretti said it was the greatest race he ever did in a sports car um, and overtook everything and, uh, and won the race. Uh, and he said, Mario said he felt so sorry for Peter Reverson, who'd driven... McQueen did the minimum number of laps that you required as a co-driver to do. Revson did, you know, hours and hours and hours. He was absolutely exhausted. Andretti said the only reason he'd been able to pass Revson at the end was because the man was so tired. Um, And yet Peter Revson, barely anybody knows he was even in the car. Steve McQueen got all the credit um, for a race that he lost effectively. And um, Mario Andretti went and won that race, which was the only race that the 512S, which was Ferrari's answer to the Porsche 917, ever won in two seasons of racing against the, the Porsches. So that's why oh, that's wow. in there. Yeah, significant then. Um, okay, so we've got two Italian Grand Prix now. Um, the first one is 1976. Again, this is not a win. Um, shall I? I'm going to try and do this one. 
Um, and Good. you're going to have to jump in with some texture and some more detail. So, as we know, 1976, it's a, it's a title battle, isn't it, between James Hunt and Nicky Lauder. Um, and Lauder has his horrendous accident at the Nürburgring. Yeah. Um, yeah. Burnt terribly, inhaled all sorts of horrible fumes and smoke. And he was very, very close to death. Read the last rites. Um, people assumed that he would be killed. Um, and just a few weeks later, he makes his return at the Italian GP at Monza. Um, and he qualified within three quarters of a second of pole um, in fifth position, despite being horribly injured. And there are, I think there's footage and there are photos, aren't there, of him peeling off his his balaclava. And you just see it sticking to these horrible wounds, these burn scars that have not healed. Um, yeah. And it's just still- astonishing. He was still bandaged up at the time. His qualifying time, there were three Ferraris in that race. He was the quickest of the three Ferraris in that race. Um, It was six weeks after he'd been given the last rights. And he qualified it fifth. And in the race, he came fourth. Fourth in the race. And meanwhile, his title rival had a nightmare. Qualified way back. I assume he had some issues. But then he spun off on lap 11. Um, And so... Lauder was leading the championship by five points after this race, having most people would have assumed having almost lost his life at the Nürburgring six weeks before. It's it is the most extraordinary motorsport comeback from from a, a, a terrible crash. Um, and I, th- I think for sheer courage, just to get back in the car to, I mean, who could imagine? how much pain he was in the difficulties he faced um and to go out and to do that it is i i i think it is unparalleled in 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 formula one history amazing bravery he didn't win the championship that year as we know hunt did win um yeah, after but everything that happened at fuji yeah he only didn't win because he refused to drive he he, he said that the conditions at fuji were just ridiculous they shouldn't be racing um, and that his life meant more to him than you know winning a world title. Um, so, you know, if he'd stayed out there, given how narrow a margin Hunt won by, he would have won the championship. So it was almost his choice. He almost he essentially gave it up, um, and you know should never forget that. Mm. Astonishing bravery. Um, okay, well we're staying at Monza, but we're twelve years later, nineteen eighty-eight, and this is such an incredible story. Um, one of F1's most amazing stories and it's it's one that makes you wonder if indeed there is a puppeteer somewhere pulling the strings writing the script for the sake of the show because it was perfect wasn't it it's just spooky isn't it so we we, we all remember um, 1988 16 races 15 wins for the McLaren MP44 um, Senna Prost absolutely an unstoppable machine um, and and off they went at Monza and it was just going to be business as usual um, and then Prost had his only mechanical failure of the season. He had an engine problem and then he was out. Um, and then Senna was absolutely controlling the race. There were two Ferraris behind him um, and they were gaining on him, but he was a little bit marginal on fuel. Um, so he was just being sensible. He was managing the gap. He was totally in control of everything. Um and then he, <laughs> at the first that came, he came across Jean-Louis Schlesser, who was subbing for a sick Nigel Mansell in the Williams, in the Williams Judd, in the only Formula One race he ever did. And 
it was essentially caused by Schlesser seeing Senna coming and thought, thinking, oh shit, I better get out of the way and moving on to exactly the bit of track that Senna was going to use to get past. So he was, you know, it's, it's a kind of ultimate example of the road to hell being paved with good intention. Um, and, you know, he and Senna bumped into each other and that was it. And Senna was out. And the Ferraris, um, driven by Gerhard Berger and Michele Alboreto, came through and finished first and second at Monza six weeks after the death of Enzo. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's spine-tingly. Mm. You know, on home territory, the only significant result they had all season was on home territory just after the death of their founder, and it was a one-two. Yeah, I mean, to this day, it just makes me, um, yeah, it's an astonishing. It really um, is. I mean, you know, they didn't win. I mean, that wasn't a win on merit. Um, clearly, the no. McLarens would have won it, you know, if one hadn't broken and the other fallen off. But, you know, you take them as you get them, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing how it worked out. Uh, okay. All right, well, we're moving to Hungary then, a year later, 1989. Um, yeah. Mansell in a Ferrari, charging through from the midfield. Um, and there's that incredibly famous pass on Ayrton Senna. Yeah, he qualified 12th. Now, you have to remember, um, you know, he qualified, he qualified two and a quarter seconds off pole. Wow. Yeah. He qualified 12th. Um, the car on qualifying tyres was an absolute nightmare. Um, and, you know, and this, remember, at the second most difficult circuit on which to overtake in, in all of Formula One. Um, so you have to remember that too. Um, but it was the first Ferrari, in fact, the first Formula One car, um, to have a sequential pedal shift transmission, which had been hideously unreliable and they had all sorts of problems with it. Uh, but what it did mean was that, um, because he didn't have to take his, his hand off the steering wheel and reach over and change gear and so that he, it meant that he managed to get from 12, I think he overtook four or five cars before the first corner because he wasn't having to, you know, change gear. And he's really, really fast gear shifts. Um, and then he, uh, and then he sort of waited and bided his time. Um, and so, yeah, so by about lap 20, um, he'd caught Prost in the McLaren. You know, this was McLaren in 1989. It wasn't quite, you know, an MP44 from 1988, but it was pretty close. It was an amazingly quick car. And yet Nigel shut him down at over a second lap um, and caught him. And there was, Patrese was leading the race. Uh, then it was Senna, then it was Prost, then it was Mansell. Um, Mansell did Prost by coming out the last corner, which is that long right-hander, um, much, much faster, because he knew if he just sat on his tail, um, Prost would out-drag him down the straight. But he carried so much momentum, uh, he was past Prost and gone before Prost could respond. So that was him. Patrese then got a, I think he got a hole in his radiator. Uh, but anyway, that was the end of Patrese. And that just left Senna. That just left Ayrton Senna. Um, and then there was a little bit of luck, wasn't there? There was Stefan Johansson in the Onyx, the back marker. Um, terrible car. Um, and Stefan was having a terrible time in it. And he was going down the straight. And the thing, and Senna was coming right up behind him, just using the slipstream to try and get past him. And the Onyx jumps out of fourth gear. Um, and so Senna immediately lifts and swerves. And... Mansell, who was following Senna at the time, you know, what any normal person would have do would have been to just lift off as well, um, because you wouldn't have known which way Senna was going to go. And Mansell didn't do that. He kept his foot, he just kept his foot in. 
and he swerved around the swerving Senna um, and into the lead. And then he was gone. I think he won the race by like 26 seconds. Um, and it was, yeah, I mean, I think that was Mansell's greatest drive. And people, that, people don't sort of think, they, they think about that amazing British Grand Prix and everything. But I actually think, I think that was the greatest drive of his career. Because in a car that was just not working very well, uh, he did. He had set it up for the race. He had realised in practice that the car wasn't going to qualify anywhere. So he set it up, you know, and the car was handling well. But, you know, you don't set a car up for the race when qualifying is all because you're on a circuit where you can't overtake. Um, but that's what he did. And it gave him the race. And yeah, from 12th to a win at Hungary, amazing achievement. I once got shown around Nigel Mansell's museum by Nigel Mansell and he's got a painting wow. of that very moment on the wall um, and he tells the story really well um, okay that was number nine so we're on to number ten yes um, and of course there had to be in this list there had to be at least one Michael Schumacher victory um, and you've chosen a good one yeah um, Spain 96 I think a lot of people know about this race because it is just it's just such a, because it's you know it's all there on, on YouTube and it's wonderful to watch but um, the context is the Ferrari that he had, the F310. I mean, Eddie Irvine, his teammate, described it quite simply as undrivable. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible car. Um, and Michael, he qualified it, I think, in P3, which was... But, I mean, that was just... It, Michael said it was one of his greatest qualifying performances ever. Um, it, he qualified it completely out of position. It had no business being anywhere near that front, that, that, that close to the front of the grid. Um, and then on race day, he would have opened the curtains of his bedroom window and looked out and just seen leaden skies. And, you know, I think it was, it was just one of those drives, wasn't it? He was, it took him 12 laps to take the lead. Um, and then we were demonstrated to one of the greatest displays of pure driving talent I think I've ever seen. Um, you know, Sterling Moss said it was, it was like he was in a different race. It was like you, it was one of the greatest performances, one of the greatest exhibitions of pure driving talent and skill that he had ever seen. Um, and he wasn't just being really precise. He I mean, he was hurling this thing around. And this car was, you know, it was down on power. It was aerodynamically extremely suspect. Uh, it was very difficult to drive. And in the wet, this was, you know, Michael was driving it like a, like a Mark II Escort. Um, sometimes entire seconds quicker than the whole of the rest of the field. Um, and the astonishing thing was he was doing it with a car which was not only in its design very flawed, it was also sick. <laughs> you know, he was losing, yeah. you know, the engine was down the power, he was losing cylinders. Um, and yet he was still... Okay, so on that 42, he came for his last stop. And when he came out, after the stop, so having taken that stop and lost all his time, he was still a minute ahead of the next best car on the track. And only then did he actually think, okay, I better just back off a bit um, and you know look after the machinery. Um, and he won the race. And, okay, Ferrari didn't then go... He didn't win the championship with Ferrari until until 2000 but I think that was one of those races because you know let's not forget what a terrible terrible state Ferrari was in you know at the time you know they hadn't won a driver's title since 1979 wow yeah with J.D. Schechter um and this was I think probably when Ferrari that year when Ferrari started to believe that maybe they could get back 
And it did take them a long time to do it. But, you know, with Michael and, as we know, with Rory Byrne and with Ross Braun and Jean Tot, they built a team that went on to utterly dominate the sport in the early part of the 21st century. Mm. Yeah, but on that, yeah, that day at the Spanish Grand Prix in 96, he just sort of elevated himself to a different plane, didn't he? And he, he must have been in that zone that racing drivers sometimes talk about where you're, it's almost out of body and you're... Yeah. You're you just can't quite explain yeah. what it is that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Amazing, right. amazing to perform at such a different level to everyone else. Um, okay, there we go. Ferrari's ten greatest races. Now, whenever we do these sort of lists, people will always say, "How could you forget this one?" So, if we have forgot, if you want to nominate one that should be on our list, just send us a message. Um, it, it, do, it does strike me that we got nothing from the last twenty-five years in there. Yeah, um, which probably said more about me and you know, where my interest lies than, uh, than anything else. So if you do think that there is something uh, more recent than that, um, do let us know. Mm. So we've got a, a listener question coming up from James Lazar. Um, it's a, a new thing that we're doing, isn't it? We're ending every episode by answering a listener question. Um, so if you want your question answered, just get it across however you want to. You can email us. Um, you can find that on our website or you can send us a message on social media. Um, if it's a good question, we'll answer it. Um, before that, thank you to JBR Capital for sponsoring the podcast. Um, and thank you as well to all of you for listening, for downloading. Please rate and review the podcast. That's really important. Please do do that. That's how we find new listeners. It's really effective. So please do rate and review the podcast and also subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, so this listener question is from James Lazar. What are your thoughts on jointly developed cars like the Z4 and Supra or the MX-5 and Fiat 124? Good question. I think the answer is they're good news because I think what you will find, for sports cars like that, um, probably not the MX-5, I guess, but certainly with the Z4 and the Supra, um, both companies said that without the joint venture, the cars, the car wouldn't have been produced because there were just not enough volume um, to justify tooling up to produce a car like that. Um, if it's only, you know, they, they just, as one brand, as one um, manufacturer, they're just not going to sell enough. So if you like the idea that the Z4 and the Supra are around, then just be aware that the only reason that they're around is because it was a joint venture. So it's not a choice of having one or the other. It's the choice of having both or none. Yeah. And we'd prefer, wouldn't we, that there were good good margins, good volumes on these cars and manufacturers could really commit to building their own um, and using all their own proprietary hardware um, and creating cars with distinct character. Um, it's not the world we live in, sadly. It's not the world we live in. So... Without this sort of component sharing and sharing development costs and so on, these cars don't exist. And you also have to bear in mind that, you know, because of the economies of scale, they're going to be better cars because, the, you know, they will have bigger engineering budgets um, because, you know, the volume projections will return a certain, you know, an, an, an amount of profit which allows them to invest more heavily in the project in the first place. So, you know, you get better, A, you get cars that actually get built and they're also, you know, better than they would have been if, if, if they'd just gone it alone. So... I mean, I do know, I, I think I know where the question is coming from. And it is a bit odd when you look inside cabins and you see common switch gear and you're wondering what you're in. And, you know, both the case of the Z4 and the Supra, I think Toyota probably did a better job than BMW. But you know, neither of them is, you know, 
going to replace a Porsche Cayman in our hearts anytime soon. They are slightly sort of compromised. Um, but, you know, uh, there, there are two two-seater sports cars out there which would not exist if they hadn't been built on a common platform. So, you know, to me, good news. Mm. Okay, there we go. Well, get your listener questions in and we'll answer them. Thank you, everybody. Um, and we'll talk to you again next week. Before that. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.